Hello, and welcome back to the Gals Getting Rich podcast. We are your hosts, Maeve and Matza. So today we are covering a very juicy topic. We are talking about the campus to corporate pipeline. We will be covering everything you need to know to seamlessly transition your finances from living your best college life to hunkering down and working your corporate job. I think, you know, this is a really fun topic because finances in college were pretty daunting. Sometimes you want to study, you want to be social, you want to have good grades. Um, But sometimes, I don't know, it's hard, right? Like, do you, not everybody necessarily has an allowance for fun things to get from, fun money to get from their parents. Um, And you don't always want to ask like, yeah, I want money so I can, you know, go do XYZ thing. I mean, some things are obviously okay, but you know, a lot of the social aspects of college have monetary value, whether it's going to a party or going out somewhere or eating out. Um, or, you know, fun fun money definitely can create a social complex and uh, it's really interesting and a tough thing to navigate through. I remember working in college and only taking paid opportunities over the summer. And I know I've talked to so many people about this where it's uh, the opportunity cost of taking a paid internship versus an unpaid internship. And honestly, only certain people with certain um, financial privileges are able to take those unpaid opportunities. And I will say sometimes I found myself getting a little jealous of people who could participate in those extra activities that might cost more or have these unpaid experiences or honestly experiences that you pay to do, whether it's like a international internship abroad, but it's an internship, but you have to pay money to do it. And, you know, kudos to everyone who got to do those. It was just one of those things where, you know, each individual has to think about what's what's their position, what's their situation. Um, so, like I said, it's not a bad thing to do those things. It was just kind of one of those things where you have to justify what you're gaining versus the cost. And there's so many of these instances in, in college. And I feel like there's so many of those instances beyond college as well. I think you really see the discrepancy in privileges when you're in college, just looking at who can afford to do what and, you know, all these opportunities that some people have to say no to that others get to just freely say yes. It's not helping out the pay wage gap. No, not at all. And I feel like in college, my graduation party money and gifts from family for for my high school graduation was pretty much what I was living off of. And Still, even then, I was like, okay, like, I need to find a job. I need to work this many hours to be able to do X, Y, Z. Like, while I was living in a dorm, it was one thing. And then when I moved off campus and had to pay my own rent, that was a whole nother thing, right? So um, I I really felt like I was always something that I was thinking about in college, especially because I knew I was going to be on this four-year track, graduate, get a job. Like, that was my master plan. Not everybody has the same master plan, and that's totally okay. Versus, you know, maybe some of my friends who are planning on studying a little bit longer, their situation um, or mindset is a little bit different. And that's, again, totally fine. So I thought college was hard. But then when we graduated, I was like, wow, this is a whole new ball game. You have to navigate student loans that start incurring interest after you graduate. Um, Those interest rates are pretty haunting. And then on top of that, you're thinking of what the next milestone is. Like immediately after I graduated, it's like, oh, like you should buy a house. And I haven't bought a house yet, but one of those things that it's like okay you know you finish one thing you do the next step finish one thing you do the next step but um everybody has their own path no I agree I think that when I graduated everyone was really at a different 
you know, place in life in terms of finances. Some people had saved all throughout college. Some people had not saved at all. Some people had plans for a job. Some people were, you know, going to live with their parents for a year while they figured things out. Um, And I know like one person bought a house like two weeks after we graduated. And I was like, oh my gosh, how? I had, I think I had like $500 to my name when I graduated. Um, So. Oh, same. And even after, I know earlier I was talking about being frugal in college, but I feel like that summer between starting work and starting my job, all I wanted to do is travel. Like I went to Europe. I went to the Appalachian Mountains. I went on two trips with my family um, and so on. Right. So like I, I think everybody has their own way of doing it and money is earned to be spent to a certain degree. But like the means to do things is just like a whole ball game, which varies for each person. Mm hmm. 100%. I, I guess like when you're thinking corporate, college to corporate, there's all these things that come to mind, right? Budget, student loans. My big thing was how do I buy a car? Um, how do I budget so I have so much money that, you know, eventually I don't have to work anymore. That whole fire topic is super popular. What the hell is a 401k, 403b? How much money should I be putting in it? Um, do I get a fancy credit card? How do I buy a house? how do I finance all these trips my friends want to take or these bachelor parties or bachelorette parties? And I don't have FOMO, but how do I accomplish that personal goal of traveling? What the heck is an HSA? How do you do health insurance? Purchasing an adult wardrobe, we kind of talked about that a little bit in our last episode, but all these things are, you know, it's a change. It's definitely a shift. Yeah. And there's no way we can go into depth on all these topics that we will be discussing today. So we will go more into detail on later episodes, but today we are giving you just what you need to know to get started. Yeah, so assuming you already have a job lined up, first question to ask yourself is, what is my future income? You may be getting paid hourly via salary, or you may be a freelancer, whatever it is, determine your future expected income. And then the next question to ask yourself is, what are the benefits included in the job? You know, those benefits can be paid time off, insurance, maybe they give you a bonus. And then, you know, where are you working? Am I expected to be in the office or am I work from home? In my case, when I graduated college, I knew I needed to buy a car. So that was a big thing on my mind. Um, Will I be covered under my parents' health insurance or will I need to get my own? Fun fact, I'm still on my mom's health insurance. She doesn't get to kick me off until I'm 26 or at least she's being nice and not kicking me off, but it's kind of both. I'm like, can I stay on it? And she's like, yeah, I guess that's fine. Because um, sometimes it is cheaper. Sometimes it's more expensive. It's It really depends from uh, plan to plan. So if your mom's is better, stay on that. If yours ends up being better, then maybe it's time to get your own. The biggest point here is it's important to understand your future money state before you can start planning for it. First thing to start thinking about is your future budget. If you've already started your full-time job, great. Pull up your pay stub and look at your income after taxes are deducted. If you haven't started your job yet, just take your projected gross yearly income. So if you have a salary, it could be your salary. If you're hourly or if you're a freelancer, just make a projection of what your yearly income will be. Now run over to an online paycheck calculator. And if you live in the United States, make sure you put in your state to get the right state taxes. 
And then your paycheck calculator will spit out your projected net monthly income, which is your income after taxes are deducted. This is a number to work off of for the rest of your budget. We want to know what your income is after taxes. The second thing is necessary expenses. It's hard to predict every expense you will have once you're in the real world, but it never hurts to try to predict those expenses. What you can do is maybe in an Excel sheet, I'd write down all your monthly expenses you will have, such as rent, utilities, debt payments, phone bill, car payment, car insurance, subscriptions, internet, Wi-Fi, whatever it is. You may not know exact amounts of what you'd be paying, but give it a rough estimate. Deduct these expenses from your net monthly income to see how much money you have left over. Just a little tidbit on rent, it's commonly the biggest expense most people incur in their budget. Trust me, I live in New York City. Um, the standard rule of thumb is that your rent should not exceed one third of your gross monthly income. So if your salary is $36,000 a year, and then that means that that's $3,000 a month in gross income which would allow you to spend $1,000 a month on rent. This is just a rough guideline and not the rule, but you get the picture. So before you start getting into the weeds of investing, it's extremely important to set up an emergency fund. An emergency fund is your financial safety net that will protect you from emergency expenses, future mishaps, and any other unexpected costs. This money is not for, you know, buying that trip to Cabo with your friends or buying last minute Christmas presents or just dipping into whenever you feel like going over budget. This money is for emergencies, such as unexpected medical expenses, going to the emergency room, your car broke down, you lost your job and you need to pay rent, although I hope that doesn't happen to you, or your furnace breaks down, etc. The rule of thumb is that your emergency fund should be three to six months of living expenses. Some people are fine operating with a bit leaner of an emergency fund. However, I'm someone who likes to have it a little bit extra padded. And if you're a homeowner, a lot can go wrong very quickly, such as pipes bursting, your air conditioning blows out, you need mold removed, your roof is caving in, etc. So just make sure you got extra stowed away in your emergency fund in case of a housing emergency. Like, honestly, the thing I have to add to that is like, like I said, you know, a homeowner versus if you're renting, right? And if you're renting and depending on what city you're living in, like, if anyone's been reading the news, New York rent right now is the highest it's ever been ever. And it's crazy. Like the minimum, if you want a one bedroom to yourself, the minimum amount of money you have to make is like over $160,000 a year, which is crazy, right? If, if you have roommates, I think that's achievable. But for a mm -hmm. one bedroom, one bathroom, I'm like, man, Ohio sounds pretty nice. <laughs> no, it is nice. Very cheap rent. Although it's the rent here is about to go up a lot because they're building that Intel plant in like outside Columbus. And they're comparing the impact that the Intel plant is going to have on Columbus to uh, Chandler, Arizona. I forget what happened there. Oh, yes. Like, they're comparing. It's, like, going to be huge. Um, like, 40,000 jobs they're predicting is, like, the total impact it will have. It's important to note that if you are currently paying down high-interest debt, which is any debt with an interest rate or APR over 6%, many people will advise you that you should only have $1,000 in your emergency fund so you can focus on paying down debt as soon as you can. 
Now, you may be wondering, where should I keep my emergency fund? Well, I can say that you definitely should keep it in a high-yield savings account. What is a high- HYSA it is, or a high-yield savings account? It is a normal savings account with a bank with a higher interest rate than usual. So that means your HYSA will be paying you more than other banks for keeping your money in them. This is one of the easiest money moves you can make right out of college. You're literally getting paid to just keep your money in this account. You want your emergency fund sheltered in a safe and liquid account and not invested in stock in the stock market or crypto. That way, when an emergency strikes, you have immediate access to your money. I know when I opened up my high-yield savings account with Capital One, the interest rate was 2% for any amount over $10,000, which came out to at least $200 a year I was making in just interest, which is pretty crazy. I do have to pay taxes on that $200, but that's still $200 I didn't have before, and I didn't really have to do much, you know? That's the power of a high-yield savings account. You're just making money for doing nothing. Since then, interest rates have dropped dramatically, and I think my interest rate is more like 0.5% right now, which is still high compared to normal savings accounts, but it's nothing like what interest rates were before COVID. It doesn't cost anything to open up one of these bad boys, so you definitely should have a high-yield savings account for your emergency fund. Yeah, and I know I I did mine in my – I think I opened mine my freshman year of college, and at that time, Discover had the highest rate, so I've just kept my money in Discover. And then I have a good amount of money in Yoda, actually, and Yoda's kind of cool. They incentivize you with these quote-unquote lottery tickets. And then every week there's a drawing and then based on your tickets, you get a different amount of money. And I think, honestly, I think I've gotten like a six or 7% return in the past few years on it. So I'm pretty happy with it. Um, yeah. It's, it's, if you need a referral code, let me know. Cause like I said, in the last one, I got all the referral codes. Um, <laughs> but I know Maeve, you have like a whole list of your favorite uh, high yield savings accounts. And if you're in the market and looking nerd wallet, is an awesome resource if you go to nerd wallet and then you go to best of and then best of banking then they have a best of high yield savings account so that's honestly something to worth that's worth checking because it'll tell you who has what rate at what time because obviously it changes yeah and then based off that you can look who's giving you the best deal at the time that you're trying to open it so that's really interesting i was doing research on high yield savings accounts last night and this is as of like yesterday or the day before, it's very recent, that Ally Bank, which Ally has a really great high yield savings account, they are increasing their interest rates soon. So now's a great time to open up a high yield savings account with Ally. They also have, I think it's like three month CDs, which a CD is a certificate of deposit. You give a bank, you know, $200 for three months and then at the end of three months, they give it back to you and some extra money on top of it kind of deal. They have no penalty three-month CDs at like three-something percent, which is pretty cool because you can pull out your money from that CD at any point and still get some of the money back. As Vatsa said, you can go on NerdWallet and see their preferred high-yield savings accounts. Just to shout out some of our favorites, we like Ally Bank. Marcus by Goldman Sachs, Yada, like what Vatsa was saying, and I have the Capital One money market account. Also, as a side note, if you don't already have a checkings account, then definitely open up one of those two. 
I made it pretty easy on myself and I opened up my checking and my high yield savings account with Capital One. So I just had one login for both and it made things pretty easy. Capital One is an online bank, although they are rolling out some Capital One cafes. But if you prefer a brick and mortar bank where you can talk to someone in person, or if you are a credit union gal, then definitely feel free to open up a checkings account there. They're all pretty much the same thing. Speaking of high interest debt, it's important to know your entire debt situation. This could be student loans, car loans, credit card debt, or even debt from a buy now pay later company such as Klarna or a firm. Whatever it may be, take time to list out all your debts and the interest rate. The interest rate is very important. The That is the percentage interest charged to your principal amount. And sometimes that compounds. You always have to check. Um, make sure to note what the minimum payment for each debt is. That is a reoccurring essential expense, in my opinion, and it must be included in your overall budget. We will go more depth about paying off debt in later episodes, but for now, in your budget, make sure you have room to at least pay off the minimum payment each month on all your debts. And obviously, after you do all of your necessary deductions from your budget, if you have money left over, you should definitely put it towards tackling high-interest debt, which is oftentimes student debt if it's above 6% APR, or even 5%, just any higher debt you want to tackle that first but then again we will go into that in a different episode so moving on to your retirement account your 401k your employer sponsored retirement account this is not like a Roth IRA which is an individual retirement account this is an employer sponsored account Vats and I really only have experience with 401ks so we'll mainly be speaking to those Although there are 403Bs, which to my knowledge, they operate very similarly. Yeah, and maybe if we just want to call out the difference uh, between a 401k and 403B, they're usually employer provided. 403B is typically if you have a job in a public education organization or you work for a nonprofit or maybe it's some sort of hospital. It's, it's mainly government-focused jobs, so that's where you might see that difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a friend who works as a nurse practitioner, and she has a 403B. But Wes and I, we are corporate gals. We are consultants, so we got our 401Ks. Absolutely. Yeah. So the biggest thing to pay attention to with your 401K is your employer's contribution. This is the amount of money your employer will contribute to your 401k, which is often in the form of a match. So basically the way a match works is that your employer will match up to 6% that you contribute to your 401k, and then anything you contribute beyond that, they don't do anything. However, if your employer matches like 6% and you only contribute 4%, then your employer will only contribute 4%. You definitely want to max out that employer match. That is basically guaranteeing yourself a 100% return on your money, which you probably won't just get from the stock market in a year. So whatever your employer match is, make sure you are at least putting that amount away in your 401k. Anything beyond that is up to you, but we'll go into that later on. It would be great to contribute beyond the match, but right now we're talking about the bare minimum you should contribute. As always, everyone's budgets and stories are different, so make the best decision for you. 
We would absolutely love for everyone to max out their employer match, but if an extra 1% contribution is going to make or break your budget, then don't do it. Do whatever you can and do what is best for you. But if you can, try to max out the employer match. I totally agree with you, Maeve. You, you should always do what's best for you. I started out with my 401k, and I think that was my main investment account. And because it was pre-tax, I kind of tried to put 12, 10% in the beginning. And then once I got the match, I put the match. Um, well, I get the match because you actually, for me, I didn't, I mean, both of us, we work for the same company. You don't get your match until a year after working. So for us, it was like a year and a half or like a whole vesting period, right? So then once I started getting that, then I think I relaxed on my number a little bit. And the reason I did that was because I was like, oh, well, this much money is going towards retirement. I think that's pretty good. Um, you also can't access this money until you're like, I think it's 59, right? For 401k or is it? Yeah, it's 59. 59 and a half. 59 and a half. Yeah. So until I'm that old, I can't even touch it. So then I kind of started shifting my money into other vehicles. But initially starting out, this was my number one go-to. Um, I've seen a lot of people who try to max theirs out, which is like, I think hard to do when you're first starting off, but as you move up the corporate ladder, it's a little bit easier to do and it's worth doing because of that tax benefit. Yeah, like when you're contributing to your 401k, sometimes you forget, oh, I'm actually, that's money you're saving, right? Sometimes you don't remember, oh, I feel like I'm not saving enough, but actually if you're putting 12, 12% of your income there plus your 6% match, then that's like 18% you are automatically saving it's awesome, right? Like it kind of takes out the hard work for you. And that's why I really like it. Yeah, I think you should just do whatever is best for you. And that will vary depending on your situation. I know for me, I, when I first started my job, I was so nervous about over contributing to my 401k. And then I would get my paycheck and I wouldn't have enough money to pay rent. So I went very easy in the beginning. I think I only did six percent I just did the match and then after two paychecks I was like okay I'll do ten percent and now I max it out every year but that's because I am hoping to maybe retire early one day I'm not sure but I'm just going to max it out no matter what I know for my boyfriend he is trying to start up a business and he would rather put his money right now into his business and you know getting things off the ground for him and having immediate money to access so he can take a three-month break from his job and be able to work on his business full-time. And that's his situation. But for me, I know I'm not going to quit my job right now, so I'm just going to put it all towards my 401k. One last thing. I didn't realize this with 401ks, but you can change your contribution at any point you want. There was a streak in Baza. You can you know, confirm that this is true. But I used to change my 401k contribution every week. Like every- I remember that. I was like, girl. (laughs) Yeah. It was like my hobby for a hot second was my 401k. And I still check that baby every morning. First thing when I log in, you don't have to. For a lot of people that causes anxiety, don't do that. But this is just me. I like- Especially in this market, it causes anxiety. I feel like, I feel like I check it and- I don't know. I'm really bad about it. Like, I should only check it when the market's up, but then I check and I'm like, oh my God, I'm down like 16%. That's so yikes. Yeah. Yeah. So you can change the contribution whenever you want. Don't fret too much about what it is because you can change it later. 
it's just important you get started. So just pick something and go from there. The other thing is you're going to have to pick funds to invest in in your 401k. Now, most employers have something called a target date fund or a TDF, and it's basically a fund that is a collection of stocks and bonds, and each fund has a year that it's aligned to, so it might be like 2060, and I think it goes in five-year increments, so 2065, 2070, and the allotment of stocks to bonds varies as you get older, so your portfolio gets more conservative as you get older. Um, and those are a great just automatic investing vehicle. You can just dump all your money in there. I know that some people find target date funds at their employer have a higher expense ratio, which is anything more than 0.75% in my mind. If your target date fund expense ratio is more than 0.75%, then I would recommend you just dump all your money into and a low-cost index fund that tracks the total stock market or the S&P 500. Those are typically cheaper, and they're not as automatic. If you want bonds, you're going to have to introduce them yourself, but, you know, it's easy. I do all my money into stocks, no bonds. I don't want any safety nets. I want to go full throttle because I'm so young. Totally. Full send. Let's get it full send baby so before we get into credit cards we want to provide a quick disclaimer credit cards are not for everyone if you have a difficult relationship with money and are spending more than you can afford please evaluate whether you're ready or not to have one when you're first starting out you definitely want to make sure you start building your credit but that doesn't mean the crazy fancy airline ones the easiest way for a young fresh college student or someone who hasn't built any credit like let's say you graduated college no student loans Um, which is awesome, right? But you might not have any credit history. You can actually open a credit card and uh, I would get a beginner credit card, no fee. And you may already have a credit card, in which case maybe you do have credit built up, which is, again, like I said, awesome. But if you don't, you could get a secured card, which is kind of like a debit card, but it helps build your credit or get one of those intro credit cards. Like I think... um, any one of the ones with no feed, Discover and Chase are pretty good about those. Um, I think those are really good starter credit cards. And, and that's not a recommendation of those two, but it's just like, oh, I, I know that they're out there. And again, NerdWallet, great place to look at beginner credit cards. So our personal favorite is the Discover It. It has no annual fee and will give you 2% cash back. Look this up. In the first year, you can even get referral bonuses, like $50 per person you report up to $500. It's awesome. Um, And your monthly limit will be low, but it's a great start. Now, if you already have an established credit and you're wondering, hmm, should I open a fancy credit card? The answer is it depends. We'll do a separate episode on credit cards, our strategies with them, which ones are our favorites and all of that. But for now, we'll leave you with if you don't have a credit card yet and you're ready and able to have one, open up that starter credit card, whether it's Discover It or another one. Like I said, NerdWallet is a great place to start. Chase has a great one. Discover is great. Capital One has a great one. Honestly, the Apple card is pretty good if you're just starting out as well. And I really like their interface into um, your phone. Like you can easily see how much you're spending and tracking that. It's really cool. And whether you're just opening up your first credit card or you already have one, the number one rule with credit card is to pay off the balance every month in full and on time. This will ensure you are building up your credit score. So in essence, don't spend more than you can afford to pay off. 
Yeah, that's right. So I know when I went to college, my dad sent me a link to the Discover It card. And he's like, open up this card. And I'm so glad he did that because I think my credit limit was initially like $250. Like it was pretty low. And I always paid it off on time every month. And I was never putting on much money on it. But when I graduated college, I already had four years of credit history built up for me which really helped me when I was applying for a different credit card, like a travel credit card. I had an established credit history when I graduated college, which really helped me when I went to apply for a travel credit card. So if you're in college, look to open up one of those starter credit cards. And a lot of the student cards have good grade cashback bonuses, right? Like if you say you have above a 3.5, you get money back. Um so, yeah, absolutely. And and also, too, one thing that I realized that helped me is my dad actually put me on his credit card when I, I was, like, I think he put me on when I was younger, when I was 16, just started driving. He's, like, okay, keep this credit card just in case you run out of gas or some emergency, whatever, right? And that actually helped boost my credit score quite a bit. So even having a parent, if you're in a situation where you're able to ask your parent to or – um if you think it's something that might help you, I never really used my dad's credit card unless it was something, you know, like literally for gas. And also this was in high school, but if you are a parent, know a parent or are thinking about it, then once you get your name on something as authorized, uh, that can also really boost your credit because they look at your, your spending habits and in the sense, are you able to pay off your debt every month and how much you're spending, meaning you're, spending less than 30% of your credit line. And then also another big component is how old your credit history is, right? And the longer you go, the higher your credit score will end up going up. Yeah. Credit cards are very juicy. I'm going down this like credit card rabbit hole phase in my life. And I've been following a lot of credit card Instagram accounts. And I don't know, they're just super cool. I really like credit cards. Same. It's kind of a problem, but (laughs) maybe it's not a problem. Yeah. All right. The last thing you need to know when you are coming right out of college is your health insurance situation. I know when I graduated, I was on my dad's health insurance, but he was on private health insurance and it just like was not, you know, it was just like not that great. Pretty much. I had to pay for a lot of my prescriptions and my co-pays were higher. And my dad was having to pay out of pocket every month for me. And it was just way more economical for me to go on my employer plan. So when I started at my job, I signed up for health insurance. And the first thing I looked for was, does my employer offer a high deductible health plan? A high deductible health plan is just like what it sounds. Your deductible or the amount of money you need to pay before insurance starts covering you is higher than you know other plans like a PMO plan, which has a lower deductible. The awesome thing about a high deductible health plan is they are often paired with an HSA. If your employer does not offer an HSA component, you can go ahead and open up an HSA on your own. I know Fidelity has an awesome HSA platform you can use. But my employer did have an HSA. An HSA is a health savings account, and it's super cool. It's like the coolest investing vehicle. Basically, you put in money pre-tax. It gets invested into your HSA, 
and it grows tax-free. And then when you pull money out of your HSA, you don't pay taxes on it either. So it is triple tax advantaged. It's super cool. We love it. If you are looking for health insurance and you are healthy, then I would highly recommend the high deductible health plan. It is important to note that everyone's health situations are different. So depending on what your situation is, you may want to go for a PMO plan that starts covering you earlier on. You'll have to evaluate that on your own. But if you are young and healthy, then I would recommend high deductible health plan and open up an HSA. Yeah, I think we covered a lot. We did. Yeah, and we're only glossing over things. This is just like the bare minimum that we're saying. We're obviously not going to depth about everything or else that would take like decades and eons and eons. But this is a good start if you are just overwhelmed with graduating and having to figure out your money situation. Yeah. And, you know, if you have a topic that you want to know more about or have questions about, feel free to send us an email. Maybe we have an email. Yeah, we do. It is galsgettingrich at gmail.com. Exactly like our podcast name, Gals Getting Rich. And follow us on Instagram. I am the net worth gal on Instagram. And I'm at the Vatsinator. Vatsinator. <laughs> yeah, thanks for tuning in, guys. And we will catch you guys again in the next episode. Bye. Bye.